And on this last Tuesday home time for the June appeal, let's start off as usual with Mr Kevin Yelly. A week, Jane, listener, when what a tragic couple of weeks for workers in the construction industry. If it wasn't bad enough last week, losing poor ex-Boral Supremo Mike Kane, the workers, awarded the Troubler Wazzy Capitalist Review Business Person of the Year three years ago for services to smashing the evil construction unions over that most heinous of crimes, the secondary boycott, now described in the same paper as disaster-prone and forced out. This week, it got worse. The man who played so neutral and even-handed a role in the Her Most Gracious Majesty smashed the evil union's royal commission, Dyson not hiding his intentions, had molested a number of women, according to a report commissioned by the Chief Justice. Imagine the pain and distress construction unions and their members must be feeling for poor Mike and poor Dyson. Dyson declared a great jurist, he really is, by no less an authority than the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo back in those dark ages, as he appointed him to the High Court, and lauded by former Big Supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses, as he appointed him to smash the evil unions, in a neutral and even-handed way, which he carried out assiduously, or tried to carry out as best he could, stopping only for the odd break like attending a caring business class party fundraiser, which didn't reflect any anti-evil union, anti-lazy, avaricious worker bias, because when challenged on the matter, Dyson himself ruled there was no bias, including no bias in ruling there was no bias. Case closed. Anyway, Dyson categorically denied any wrongdoing. Well, as a great jurist, he really is, on the bench for many years, he'd know they all say that they would, wouldn't they, to coin a cliché, but if he caused any hurt or embarrassment, he apologised to the women. Interesting, he apologised for doing what he didn't do, or more correctly, for the women thinking he'd done what he didn't do, but he was very angry that the woman assigned to investigate and compile the report upon which the Chief Justice responded was not even a lawyer. He had no opportunity to cross-examine, which is in itself also interesting, because remember how the tabloid media in particular had a field day during the con mission with allegation after allegation screaming headlines day after day about how evil the evil unions were accusations from respectable witnesses like caring employers and in many cases Dyson decided it would only delay proceedings the inevitable to allow them to be cross-examined particularly when, when cross-examined, it turned out the allegations were a touch exaggerated, to, to put it nicely, leading to, after all that, none of them leading to anyone being charged despite Dyson's even-handed and neutral doing all he could. Poor Tiny, poor Dyson, all that hard work for nothing. Thus, Mike and now Dyson, two very, very distressful weeks for the evil unions. To show how evil they are, they got a wage rise last week for the lowest of low-paid workers, a whopping one-point-something percent. Boy, will they be living it up. And they still complained that it wasn't enough. Greed knows no bounds. When the problem is not that it wasn't enough, but that it was one-point-something too much. 
because the lowest of low pay getting more low pay, minuscule as it might be, is not good for the lowest of. This apparent contradiction is not a contradiction when explained by someone who, not like us, fully comprehends the delicate flower that is the economy. Who better than our old mate, Innes will cost the workers of the Trublawasi Industry Profits Group, whose only concern is the workers whom profits are able to employ. Making increasing profits the big objective, but only for altruistic reasons, providing that work, and not through greed like the lowest of low paid. Well, in a said, direct quote, minimum wage increases are not a particularly effective way of assisting the low paid. In other words, the answer to low pay is not more pay. And here, Innes franked his pro-worker sincerity by agreeing with former great socialist big supremo nuclear hawk himself and the world's greatest worst ex-treasurer, Paul. The solution is the public purse. Use the public purse to assist the lowest of, lowest of lower their taxes, for instance, and allow the caring employers to make more profit, which, as we now know, is all about their concern for workers. Let's hope the ACTU understands that at these meetings with the caring business class government and the caring business class to ensure workers are made better off by slashing their wages and conditions post-COVID-19. COVID-19. Despite wide criticism of Brazilian big supremo Jaio Bolsonaro over, among other things, his response to COVID-19, boasting the second biggest death rate behind his great idol U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, Bolsonaro is having the last laugh. He has adopted a policy acted to erad enacted to eradicate the disease. He has banned the appropriate authorities from reporting the numbers of cases and deaths, and thus, with the stroke of a pen, there are officially no new cases. Problem solved. Donald didn't go quite as far. He just ordered his lot to stop testing. The numbers were only high because they were testing, he pointed out with impeccable logic. So successful, speaking of the last laugh, Donald was able to crack a few very funny jokes about the various names for COVID-19, all of which must have shocked his audience for their racism, meaning the loud cheering and applause may have been a nervous loud cheering and applause, but he got a good laugh out of the near-empty hall where he launched his campaign near empty, where there should have been a million or more flooding into and outside the venue, Donald of the Overflow. Donald's gonna speak and cross the country, and he don't know where we are. Confident like his supporters, there was no risk in taking no precautions at the rally. Maybe he really knew no one would turn up, but a promising start, ignoring all precautions given that COVID is exploding in the area. Though it's not a problem. Last week we quoted one Donald supporter looking forward to the philosophical political gems, Keep America Great, who said he wasn't even slightly worried about, well, he couldn't think of the name of the virus, but knew it wasn't a problem. And on the day, one young woman in her trample the poor beanie said not distancing and not taking any precautions and not wearing masks was, what makes America so great? And there's about 130,000 fewer of them since not taking precautions made America so great. 
Donald's rallies attract great minds. I say there should have been a million or more flooding into and overflowing, but they were too afraid to turn up because of a handful of Black Lives Matter protesters out the front, a terrifying threat, a lawless lot with no respect for Donald democracy and Donald free speech. Variation on a theme back here, as big supremo scuttle Ben Morlash's son urged us to push ahead with relaxing restrictions, because that, he said, is part of living with COVID-19. In other words, lots of people have to catch COVID-19 for us to live with COVID-19, or in some cases, not live. This highly moral philosophy was best expressed by a bloke called Sam Lovick, real name, a former chief economist with the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories, which, let's remind ourselves, might say Commonwealth, but was privatised many years ago for efficiency reasons and is now a big, big, big super-efficient capitalist corporation, who obviously saw the chief economist bit as more important than the serum bit. Sam conceded that opening up economies, an absolutely essential, necessary opening up, makes the world ripe for a second wave, but the cost of true blue Aussies move toward eradication is vast. Keeping the international border closed longer will make true blue Aussie a more isolated and less attractive place to do business. My work whatever that is, listener, but this is a man who knows what he's talking about. My work suggested that flattening the curve was the right way to go because the economic costs of elimination and the costs per life saved were vast. But it requires that we tolerate some deaths and manage infections through extensive testing and flexible, nuanced and highly targeted social distancing. So finally, there. The economy demands we tolerate some debts. Presumably, Sam doesn't see himself as one of the sum. What laudable morals. Profits before people. Scuttle them and Sam must be right up there in Nobel Peace Prize considerations. Good afternoon. Mr. Kevin Healy. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. Next Saturday from 4 to 5.30pm. There will be an online discussion exploring the political, economic and military relationship between Australia and the US. There will be three speakers and the opportunity to contribute via Zoom. The Spirit of Eureka is organising the event and at the weekend I spoke with Kevin Bracken. Kevin, the event, as you're saying, is happening on the 4th of July, American Independence Day. They got it. We need it, and we need it from them, don't we? July the 4th is celebrated as America's Independence Day. It's when they got their independence, when they stopped being a British colony, or they, that's when they say it happened. Um, well, we're saying, when do we get our independence? Because if you have a look at it, of the 20 major companies in Australia, they're nearly all over 60% by US investors. So it's a fact that's um, not highlighted by our mainstream media here about how much foreign influence, and when they talk about foreign influence, the number one foreign influence there's on Australia is um, the US government and the US foreign policy. The largest Australian company is the Commonwealth Bank, which was owned by the Commonwealth. It's now 61% owned by US investors. The next one's Commonwealth Serum Laboratories, which is also owned by the Commonwealth. That's all of us. That was privatised, and it's 56% owned by US investors. 
Then there's BHP, the big Australian. That's 73% owned by US investors. Then Westpac, 63%. NAB and ANZ, 53%. Next comes good old Australian uh, Woolworths, 60% controlled by US investors. Then West Farmers, 56%, and on and on. So all those big Australian companies that the Australian government looks after, it's not really looking after them at all. Just with the webinar that's on at 4 o'clock, one of the speakers is Clinton Fernandez, and I'm just reading his book now. It's called Island Off the Coast of Asia. But it's really very instructive in understanding Australia's foreign policy and why we do things. And he puts it simply at the start of the book that foreign policy and the policy of the Australian government is to look after the top money earners in this country and to keep them on cot. And the same thing for the US as well. There was an article, Clinton Fernandez wrote it, it was a review of a book by another um, academic, but it just described Australia as a sub-imperialist country. That's what we are. If you look at all the, all the moves we make in the United Nations, we act as the um, stalking horse for the US. I think there was a law legislation just passed recently. Oh, I was about the annexation of all the Palestinian land by Israel. It was condemned by every country except for two, the Marshall Islands and Australia. If you just look at all the things that happened about why we do those things, why we support policies that are not in Australia's interest, but they're in the US's interest, it's because that's, that's, the, what, that's the principle that we're following under. We're looking after the people who have got all the money here and in the US, and all our foreign policy is put down as Australia's national interest. It's a very instructive book, but it also talks about the, um, all our lands, not only Australia's territorial land, on land, but also our maritime areas of um, ownership to the northwest shelf. We also own 200 miles around Heard Island, around Macquarie Island, around Lord Howe Island, around Christmas Island, and how we exploit them to our advantage and then to the disadvantage of some of the poorest countries on Earth, like East Timor. He talks about how ASIS, ASIS, the Australian Security Intelligence Services, bugged the um, East Timorese government to under, um, find out what they were doing with their oil and gas. We were part of the International Convention of the Law of the Sea, and under that, we um, had a, an agreement with the Indonesians when they, we recognised that they had control of um, East Timor. It was called the Timor Gap Agreement. I know about it because our, our seafarers used to work in there. We had an agreement with the Indonesians that... Every ship that worked there would be half crewed by Australians and half by Indonesians, and they'd be paid Australian wages. After East Timor got its independence, or just before it got its independence, Australia withdrew from the International Convention of the Law of the Sea, and we didn't recognise the time or gap. After bugging their cabinet meetings, we pressured them into accepting a deal, which gave us a, a fair share, more than what we deserved, of that area in Timor, in East Timor, off the coast. It was probably worth about 5 or $6 billion. East Timor is one of the poorest countries on earth. Very high infant mortality rates. You know, the communicable diseases are skyrocketing high. We didn't actually take it. That's the other thing. All that money went to ConocoPhillips. He compares us with Norway. Norway's got a good oil reserves. They've got a, a Norwegian sovereign wealth fund. They've got about a trillion dollars in that. We are the largest exporter of LNG in the world. Uh, Qatar... Who has, got, who has less LNG than us exporting, gets $30 billion in royalties. We get $800 billion. So the system we've got here, we've got a Labor Party and a Liberal Party. The trouble is that they're both looking after the same interests. And we need 
really independence, and that's why it's vital to have things like free CR, so you can get the true story out instead of the rubbish that's put out on mainstream media. We're having a webinar at 4 o'clock. We were going to, going to have a uh, protest at the front of the US Embassy at 12 o'clock, uh, but because of the coronavirus restrictions, we've cancelled that. We're going to probably do an online one, and you'll be able to look at it if you ever go on the Spirit Eureka website. So that'll be on the 4th of July, and hopefully we'll have it up by about 12 o'clock. And then, Kevin, there's the toxic military relationship with the US, and it is toxic, isn't it? It is toxic. 95% of all foreign bases in the world are US bases. Now, when they talk about you know, the dangers that um, you know, North Korea faces, North Korea spends less on their military than what the New York Police Department spends on theirs. They spend one-tenth of what South Korea spends on their, on their um, military. So when they talk about these big threats to the USA, it's just propaganda. And the US military works hand-in-hand with US corporations about looking after their interests. So you know, I wonder why we follow the USA into every war they have, you know, into Vietnam, into Afghanistan. We're still there after nearly 20 years in Iraq, in Syria. Why we, you know, we agree with everything they do in Libya. Disgraceful. It's a bloodthirsty foreign policy, you know, which seeks to use their the number because they're the number one military power in the world, have their domination over the rest of the world. It doesn't need to be like that. There's enough in this world for everyone to live a decent life. But what they do is they keep driving down you know, commodity prices and everything else or anything, any other strategic resource that they consider that the USA needs and they crush those companies if they don't bow to their demands, as is the case of Venezuela now. Venezuela's got the strictest sanctions. They're called sanctions, but they're unilateral uh, coercive measures. And what it does, it stops Venezuela from buying medicines, from buying equipment to service the oil industry and everything else too. Venezuela is the largest, holds the largest reserves of oil of any country, even more than Saudi Arabia. They're now they're faced with a shortage of even fuel in their own country because of the restrictions, because of these coercive measures put on in place on them by the United States. And why were they doing it? Well, they say he's a dictator. No, it's a fact. He was elected by 67... President Maduro was elected by 67% of the majority. And even the Carter Foundation, which has supervised every election in Venezuela, and it's one of the most uh, democratic countries in the world because they have elections more than anywhere else, said it's one of the fairest election systems they've seen anywhere in the world. But any country that the um, US doesn't agree with their, for, or their policies about their looking after their own people instead of the US's interests, then what they do, they target them as a dictator and they target them for regime change. And these sanctions are hurting every Venezuelan. What it's done, it's actually turned, you know, even the Venezuelan opposition against the US because it had an adverse effect on everyone. And I think up until April last year, US academics had estimated it cost 300,000 um, Venezuelans' lives. And now with the coronavirus on there too, they've actually got $1.4 billion worth of gold in the um, Bank of England. The Bank of England won't release to them. And so what they've said was, well, you release it to the um, United Nations and get them to buy not only our uh, medicines, but also medicines for other countries that need help with the coronavirus. And yet they won't do it. It's ironic that through the Second World War, after um, Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia, they knew it was going to come. So they transferred their gold reserves to the Bank of England. And when Germany took over Czechoslovakia, they said, give us our gold back. And... Uh, while the UK was at war with Germany and was bombing, and um, Winston Churchill saying, we'll fight them to the last man and the last penny, that they sent 
tons of gold to Nazi Germany through the Second World War because of the banker's honour. Now, where's that banker's honour now when people in Venezuelans are starving and they've done nothing wrong? They're not harming any country at all. It just speaks of the hypocrisy of it all. Just speak for a couple more minutes about the other speakers. I'm actually going to speak with Margie Beavis about her, her contribution, but Dennis McNamara, who is he? Well, Dennis McNamara is a um, CFMU organiser from um, Sydney, and he's faced with um, charges for daring to fly a Eureka flag on a building site in Sydney. And it's funny because the last time we had a um, protest out the front of the US Embassy was because of the, um, the interrogation room for the Australian Building and Control Commission was inside the US Embassy. So if that doesn't speak highly about not only foreign policy, but even our internal policy about how we've taken these actions against unions to destroy them, to wind down working conditions, it's exactly the same policies we follow while we follow the US blindly into every war and while we act as the US's stalking horse in the United Nations because we are the lapdogs of the USA imperialist system. And I'm not talking about the USA, the people of the USA. They're the victims of it more than what we are. You've only got to have a look at their health system now. They've got the largest number of people you know, dying of coronavirus, but at one stage they had the lowest infant mortality rate in the world. You know where the US is, comes now? It's rated at about 71 in the um, terms of infant mortality. 71, the number one industrial military power. They kill themselves. Yeah, so the number one liberal democracy in the world is not doing a good job of looking after their own people. And you're only going to see what's happening to the veterans who come back from these wars. There's an average of 20 people committing suicide a week. And that's a, probably a perfectly natural human condition when you put up to do with human things, which they're doing right over the world. So it's incumbent on us. We're having a spirit of Eureka, trying to get Australian people to realise about why this country's not getting better instead of improving. It's because of the complete control that the people who have all the money have over the government, over the media and the uh, military and the police and all those other bodies of government too. We need to wrest control off them and we need to do it by people being more active. And the first thing you can do is get better informed and the other things we can do is give solidarity to the people who are suffering because of what's, what's going on. Well, Jan, you're yeah. a great supporter of the um, protest we had at Oceana Gold over six or seven years. The, and some of the successes of that are still, being, are still going on now. With all those protests that we had, and, and thanks very much for being one of the supporters, it's very hard to get people out and being active about things. But... Um, Oceana Gold, an Australian-Canadian company, was suing one of the poorest countries on earth for $300 million because they wouldn't give a mining permit. And the reason they wouldn't is because El Salvador is one of the uh, most water-starved countries in the world. They actually lost their court case. They had to pay $8 million back, which wasn't the full cost of um, recovery for the cost that El Salvador had for defending the case. But El Salvador became the first country in the world to ban all metalliferous mining. When that law was passed... The governor of Nevada Vizcaya, which is in the Philippines, a state in the Philippines, went to um, the El Salvador parliament for that vote because the largest Oceana gold was in the Dipio in his state of Nevada Vizcaya. And he says, I want to get this, I want to stop this destructive mine that's there. It's a huge mine. It was built twice the size of what the environmental effects statement actually said on it. People were uh, shot, you know, when they were forced out of their homes. They were evicted without compensation. The company never got the prior approval of the people who were there. 
But what happened there, um, financial, technical and financial assistance agreement, their permit to operate the mine expired last year on the 20th of June. On the 1st of July, a people's barricade started. That barricade still holds on now. The company uh, has tried to keep it all going. It's against the governor of Nevada Scalia said, I want the mine closed. And illegally, they've kept operating it. But tomorrow is the um, first anniversary of the People's Barricade's been going together for a year. And we're going to have a bit of a fundraiser to try and get some money to um, support them. Because we want the people of the Philippines and all the world to know that when these Australian companies do it, they're, not, they're doing it in our name. We don't support them. We believe that people who live in those countries have the right to say what goes on there. And they shouldn't be having their whole ecosystem, their whole lives destroyed because people want to make a lot of money off them. There will be a fundraiser and I'll let you know later on. And of course the place to look for further information is, is the website of the Spirit of Eureka or their Yeah, okay, Spirit, Spirit of Eureka, okay. Or Facebook page. Yeah, yeah, Spirit of Eureka Facebook page, I suppose. Because, yeah, we're going to have a fundraiser for it, but I've been trying to get on the GoFundMe and all those things. I can't get past the first base. You might be the wrong colour. <laughs> but it's a great book, that Island Off the Coast of Asia. Really looking forward to him speaking. He actually was in the Australian Army Intelligence, you know, and that's something else too. <laughs> There's oh. a bloke who's in the Australian Army Intelligence, one of the highest ones. Another bloke I know, I don't know him, but it wasn't Clinton Fernandez. But he says, it was September 11, he agrees with me about what happened on September 11. What's happened is that these architect, uh, the um, lawyers for 9-11 Truth have subpoenaed the lower court of Manhattan for un, unreported federal crimes. So technically, they're meant to impanel a grand jury to investigate it. I think it was about 18 months ago they said they'd do it. They still haven't done it. So they're not even following their own laws because they, they just don't want to know. You know. The reason why we've been at wars all these last 20 years is all bullshit. And all these attacks on our, our own civil liberties are by the people who are actually in control of the whole security system now. People like Peter Dutton. Glad to see that 3 CRs on the um, <laughs> watch list of, uh, of uh, intelligence services of... Um, of Australia. Jacob Gretsch was telling me, he must have got a mention. With the Victoria Police, it was the, the launch of their new helicopters or something, saying, well, he said this on air, that it was so easy to find a, a position they wanted, and they mentioned 21 from the Street Fitzroy. It's <laughs> uh, a hotbed of activity, isn't it? Isn't it? Thanks, Good Kevin. Good on you, Jean. And that was Kevin Bracken from the Spirit of Eureka. And that's next Saturday between 4 and 5.30. Get onto the Facebook page of Spirit of Eureka. Also try the webpage, Spirit of Eureka. I'm Tash Sultana and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much. As I mentioned in the previous interview, Dr. Marky Beavis, the Vice President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, is one of the speakers at the webinar next Saturday, the 4th of July, organised by Spirit of Eureka. The theme is, Does Australia Need Independence from the USA? But Marky, her approach is a little different, being an argument for an independent foreign policy, and asked her how she's going to put that forward in the debate. My understanding is we're talking about the US and Australia being independent. I'm very keen on Australia having an independent foreign policy. I think it is 
really important that we are able to make decisions in our own interest. And as I think it was Malcolm Turnbull who coined the phrase that we were joined at the hip, we certainly are, and that is not in Australia's national interest and is really counterproductive in terms of promoting peace. I think it's clear that both China and the US are facing domestic issues, significant domestic issues, and conflict with China is shaping up to become a centrepiece of Trump's re-election strategy. Now, it would be appalling if Australia gets dragged into a war with China just because Trump wants to get re-elected. As I said, I think both China and US have domestic reasons why this may suit them politically. So I think Australia needs to be able to make decisions in its own interest. And currently we are very much part of the US war machine, if you like to put it like that. Pine Gap, which initially started as a initially seemed quite benign in that we were going to give signals intelligence to help the US see if there were incoming missiles, incoming nuclear weapons from Russia during the Cold War. And with Mission Creep, Pine Gap now provides a lot of intelligence to the US, but one of the aspects that's most concerning is the passing of information that gives information to the US about drone strikes. So these are drone strikes that are basically murders, extrajudicial killings, whatever you like to call them, in countries we're not at war with, and there's nothing you can say to defend them, really, in terms of judicial due process or understanding. There's been documented civilian deaths, and Australia is party to this. Other ways we're joined with the US uh, in the US Pacific arm, the, the, um, we have a, a major general who's second in command, so we are part of their chain of command. I mean, we have troops uh, in Darwin, uh, and the troops coming in Darwin is a whole separate issue in terms of bringing coronavirus and the concerns there, given that Darwin, Northern Territory, is coronavirus-free, and we know that the quarantine measures are not perfect. So there's a lot of issues, a lot of reasons why in Australians, it's in Australia's interest to, to have its own foreign policy and its own ability as to what conflicts it joins and doesn't join. The trouble is, I suppose, Margie, we've never had one, have we? Because we just swap Britain for the US. Yes, there's a terrific book by a bloke by the name of Alan Gindel called Fear of Abandonment, and I think that sums up Australia's approach to defending itself. It's really trailed off after the US in every major conflict since World War One. That's really a big contrast when you compare it with countries like New Zealand or Canada or Ireland, who all actually tend to act in their own country's interests instead of blindly following. And I think it's really a great shame because Australia has got the potential to be a, um, a, an honest broker who could dissociate itself from always following the US, withdraw from some of these entanglements that we have, the US troop rotation. We have a role, we could, we could be as a sort of middling power, you know, aligning with countries of like mind, be a really positive force in terms of diplomacy and peacemaking. You know, you could, you could get the US to actually, with a group of other countries, try and talk to the US and China about dealing with each other in sort of a cooperative and respectful bilateral discussion instead of this sort of endless, I'm not quite sure the right word, but endless sort of bluster that comes that is, is not helpful and quite dangerous. We can't ignore the fact that our working in with the US in their wars means that we are, well, it's been reported now and it's in, in the court that we're connected with war crimes. The drone strikes are unequivocally war crimes, so many that are involving civilians. But even 
executions based on supposed intelligence. You, there's no due process. The United States, after 9-11, enacted a sort of unending war power system, and that led to sort of the development of a sort of secret executive army, which is unchecked and unchallenged. And with Pine Gap and with Northwest Cape, we are party to that. So I think Australia needs to sort of reflect very carefully about what moral culpability we have as a country, and we need to think about that. I mean, if we were going to get out of Pine Gap, we'd certainly have to give the US notice, I mean, maybe five years notice or 10 years notice, and certainly from the nuclear weapons perspective, the fact that we're involved in nuclear weapons targeting, it appears from expert advice that the uh, information they get from Pine Gap is in fact redundant, that it's, there's, there's sufficient development in satellite technology and in other technologies that we're a backup rather than essential. So if we gave the US five years notice for the that particular section of Pine Gap, there would be no problem. And certainly other sections of Pine Gap, we need to look at and recognise what it means to be having the US in charge of a facility in the middle of Australia that makes Australia a target, that makes Australia complicit in war crimes. It's time we had a, a, a focus at, at Pine Gap and looked at what we can do to withdraw. Dr Margie Beavis, the Vice President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. So do get onto the Facebook page of Spirit of Eureka and register for the Zoom meeting on Saturday. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. In many countries in our region and elsewhere, I imagine, governments rely more and more on migrant workers who are willing to work for less than the local workers and have less rights when it comes to conditions of work and pay. And undocumented workers are even more exploited and at risk. It's no different in Malaysia, where there are an estimated 2 to 4 million undocumented migrant workers, in addition to more than 2 million documented migrant workers. And of that 2 to 4 million undocumented migrant workers, an estimated 180,000 are either refugees or asylum seekers. And now under the pretext of COVID-19, the Malaysian authorities are cracking down and in a series of sweeps beginning to round up those vulnerable people. I spoke with Peter Boyle from Green Left Weekly and asked him about that up to 6 million migrant workers in Malaysia. Where do they come from and what work do they do? There's about 2 to 4 million what's considered to be undocumented migrant workers in Malaysia. And in addition to that, there are another 2 million documented. So that was the last official statistic by the uh, International Organization for Migration. Actually, up to 6 million. Total workforce of 15 million. It's it's a huge proportion of the workforce in Malaysia. Yeah, well, that was what I was going to ask you. Why are there so many migrant workers in Malaysia? Well, a lot of them are actually from neighbouring countries like Indonesia, poorer countries that have come there. They're basically, you know, well, the, the reason they're there because it's because of the low-wage low economy, you know, and uh, all the poorer-paid jobs are basically now done by, by migrant workers, as in Singapore. And unfortunately, in Malaysia, it's, it's much more unregulated because, you know, the majority are actually considered illegal by the government, even though quite a few of them are actually registered refugees. They're all considered illegal, which means they are, can be super exploited by their employers because 
they're in permanent fear of being rounded up. So they can be paid nothing. They can be sometimes they're not paid for months. They always you know can be threatened with being uh, reported to the authorities. And there's an entire economy based on the super exploitation of these migrant workers, including, of course, police and other officials that take bribes regularly, who have even been found to have been part of trafficking across the Thai border from Indonesia. The poverty must be pretty bad. I could imagine these people wouldn't have proper access to housing, education, health, all those things. Yeah, they don't have... They don't, they don't have the rights to education and to health that Malaysians and so-called legal migrant workers have in the country. And therefore, they are often, you know, existing either with uh, no health care or home education or some education provided by uh, volunteer organizations. It must be very difficult for NDOs, though, when there are so many to try and help so many people. Yeah. It is not only difficult, but it, it also is, you know, you can imagine it's quite a, a difficult thing for uh, labour organisers as well because, of course, many uh, Malaysian workers do see them as, a, you know, a major pressure, downward pressure on wages and, and competitors for jobs, etc. So, you know, it's not an unfamiliar story for the Australian labour movement, but because of the, sh- of the of the scale of this of the migrant worker numbers in Malaysia, it is a, it is a big problem. The whole thing has uh, blown up recently, you know, ostensibly around panic and fear over COVID nineteen, and uh, you know they've been basically scapegoated. Migrant workers, in particular, are being scapegoated for it, and uh, Rohingya, in particular have been singled out for a lot of hate speech that's going around social media, etc. It's a fact, isn't it, that many of the Rohingya have been in Malaysia for many years. They're not necessarily new arrivals. Yeah, there's a lot who have been there for a long time because in, the, in an earlier period, the Malaysian government, so the, you know, the the Barisan national government, you know, manipulated or took advantage of the Rohingya issue to advance its sort of um, Muslim-Malay racialization of politics. So they were welcome in contrast to other refugees because there are a lot of refugees piling up in countries like Malaysia, particularly as countries like Australia have, have tightened their refugee policies. So they're from all over the place. But uh, the Rohingya were singled out as, you know, a group of refugees that it was worthy for Malaysia to support because there were fellow Muslims, etc. There's a lot of posturing about this. Malaysia actually funds a clinic in Cox's Bazaar, which is in the, the biggest Rohingya refugee camp in Bangladesh. You know, and, and it has made a lot of, of, of political mileage over supporting the Rohingya uh, cause. But this is this was a, a major change this year, you know, around COVID-19. That suddenly, you know, everything shifted and Rohingya uh, were blamed. There was an incident early in the pandemic which uh, may have fed this. There was a large gathering, a semi-religious gathering in Kuala Lumpur, which was attended by thousands of people, including about 2,000 Rohingya 
people and it formed the single biggest cluster early in the pandemic. So I think after that, there was a kind of a, the Rohingyas were singled out as being the source of, of infection. Now, there is some argument that because not just the Rohingya, but other migrant workers are living in poor conditions, crowded conditions, private rental mostly, that there might be a bigger chance of COVID-19 infection. But rounding them up systematically and locking them up in crowded detention centers is even more dangerous from a COVID-19 perspective. And since beginning of May, at least 2,000, mostly Rohingya, but not, not Rohingya alone, migrant workers have been rounded up, put into the centers. And within a week of that, or two weeks of that, clusters of infection were found within the centers. So, you know, it's not a logical response, highly irrational you know, a response to lock these people up in the camps. And where are these camps and who runs them? Well, the government runs the camps. They, you know, they're known, but they are, they're closed. So that there is a UNHCR. Although Malaysia is not a signatory to the um, United Nations Refugee Convention, and that's the reason why, you know, you have this bizarre situation. You have people who actually are officially accredited refugees by the UNHCR, and the UNHCR is an office in Kuala Lumpur, the government, the Malaysian government still considers them to be illegal. It just doesn't recognize them. So the government operates these detention centers around the country, but um, I think for the last, at least for the last year, it has denied the UNHCR entry to the camps. You know, there's, there's a lot that's not known about how they're treated in these camps. The other thing which is shrouded in secrecy is that recently there have been several boatloads of newly arrived Rohingya refugees who have either been turned back to sea by Malaysia or, you know, where they've landed or, or because their boats are sinking, have been detained. And, you know, the numbers, the Malaysian government says, yes, there's a couple Thai officials have anonymously said there's at least six boats um, this month that have been either turned back or the people arrested. Each boat has about like 300 people in them. And so there's been a big ramping up about this. There's a whole lot of people coming into detention camps who are very ill because many of these people, they had fled mostly from Bangladesh, actually. So they had fled from Burma to Bangladesh and conditions are so crowded in Bangladesh, in the in the refugee camps, that people pay people smugglers to take them across to Malaysia or Thailand that they can get in. But they've been stuck in the middle of the sea, some of them for up to three months. So by the time they've landed in Malaysia this month, they're in very poor conditions. Uh, some people say about 70% of the people who come off these boats cannot walk, so they have to be carried. So they're very, very you know, in very poor condition. People have died on board and been thrown overboard in, in the previous period. So it's a really horrible situation. But one of the latest statements that the Malaysian government has made is that it intends not only to, you know, charge these people with illegal entry and force them to serve a jail sentence and then deport them back to Burma, 
but uh, there's just a, a recent boat arrival which had some 269 Rohingya refugees on them. They say, well, they're going to patch the boat up, put the people back on, and push them back into sea. So this is sort of a replay of other horrible incidents that have happened you know, many, many years ago. What does international law say about patching boats up and sending people back out in the high seas? I mean, there's a law against it. I think it's called refoulement. It applies to also just sending people back to the country that, that they fled, if they have good reason to. But as you know, if a country like Australia can basically ignore the law on refugees and treat people the way they do, you know, poorer countries are going to do the same. If anything, you know, you could, they, they could argue that, that uh, Malaysia could argue that it's, it's carrying the brunt of the refugee problem in the region precisely because rich countries like Australia, you know, have the sort of inhumane and illegal uh, policies towards refugees, in, including turnbacks at sea, etc. You know, so everybody's breaking the law, right? From Europe to Australia, it's happening all over the place. In Thailand, I mean, there have been cases of the military and the police being found to actually kidnapping, turning refugees into slaves and trading them. There's a whole trade of of humans that you know the officials on them. Corrupt uh, military officials in Thailand have been involved in, and some of those people come down the line and they end up in Malaysia, you know, as super exploited workers. Well, if they're using the context or the cover of COVID-19 virus to carry out these roundups, then how is that pandemic impacting on Malaysia? And are then are these roundups going to continue? Well, I think the roundups are continuing. Now, Malaysia's actually one of the better countries. In Malaysia's population is similar to Australia, and uh, its cases, numbers of cases, etc., are not that uh, different, uh, not, not far off from where Australia is at. I think they've got a um, similar number of maybe even fewer total confirmed infections, and that could be because their testing is poorer, about eight and a half, eight and a half thousand. They've had about 121 deaths, which is only slightly more than Australia. Their current daily rate of new infections is actually lower than Australia, which has crept up over 20 in the last few days. Malaysia's getting about 14 a day. So it, it's not exactly a, a country that's sort of gripped by you know, huge numbers of deaths. But th- because it's a poor country and it doesn't have, it's got a much poorer healthcare system than Australia, the way they've kept control of the virus is by imposing a very long and much more severe lockdown. Because of this, there are huge economic consequences. And you know, plenty of people have lost their jobs and are struggling to survive. So we, the, the economic crisis that, that, that came from the pandemic is much more serious. And classically... When you have such economic crises, the tendency to find a scapegoat is very high. I, I mean, I think we can see it in a, in a rich country like Australia. There's definitely been racial scapegoating for COVID-19. But in a country where people are, are surviving a lot less and they've had a longer lockdown, 
you can imagine the pressures were. So, so that's the that's the real connection with the state of the pandemic. And I'd imagine that the poor economic situation in Malaysia has been exacerbated by the the stealing of the from the wealth fund by well, there's a few people involved, isn't there, including the former prime minister? Yeah, no doubt. You know, that's uh, the wholesale theft of uh, national assets and robbery. You know, that's definitely a part of it. But I think fundamentally, of course, Malaysia is not in poorest, least developed bracket by far. It's actually uh, not quite Singapore, but it's it's somewhere in between. But it's, it's still suffering the sort of systemic underdevelopment that most of the third world is. And it, the feature that sticks out with this is that uh, the economy is still based on significantly on low wage, low wages. And, and this is the connection because the, the migrant workers, whether they're documented or undocumented, this is the niche that they fill. So they're, they're actually intrinsic to the, the country continuing at this level of underdevelopment. And, and, and that's the poverty. So it, and um, unfortunately, it means that you have this, as I, as I said earlier, it's like a huge proportion of the labor force in the country. So you have a second-class layer of workers, and another layer of workers is slightly higher, but are always looking nervously at this large, super-exploited layer beneath them. Very, very easy to actually divide the two. You know, it's a big problem, a big problem in Malaysia. You're listening to an interview with Peter Boyle from Greenleaf Weekly, looking at the situation in Malaysia and Thailand. But surely in an economy where there were so many exploited people that there's a, a range on top who are doing very nicely, thank you. Yes, of course, they do. The number of rich people, strangely, during the times of pandemic seems to have gone up around the world. <laughs> I think Malaysia's got its own, you know, people who have somehow managed to become richer while everybody else is going poorer. Can we go from Malaysia to Cambodia where there is a great concern over the life of a, a Thai political dissident in that country who has been kidnapped and not seen since the 4th of June? Who are we talking about, Peter? The name of this dissident is Wanchaliam Satsakit. So he is one of a number of Thai dissidents who fled after the military basically took power back and crushed the so-called Red Shirt Rebellion in 2014. Uh, Quite a few people fled out of the country because they were being rounded up. Many went to Cambodia because earlier on, uh, the Hun Sen government was quite close or, you know, had good relations with the Thaksin government, which was the government basically that was in stages removed by the by the military. So they thought it was a safer place in comparison to other countries in Southeast Asia where if they, they were caught, they were sent back to Thailand. So quite a few people went over there and as it turns out, this guy, who's, you know, his long name, uh, Ta was the name he was known by his friends, so let's call him Ta. He played a big role apparently in helping some of these people who were fleeing repression uh, settled down in Cambodia. Now, many of these dissidents who had, who had fled 
were not really safe. And over the last few years, evidence has come out that people who have fled uh, not just to Cambodia but also to Laos uh, have ended up being abducted by Thai military agents who have come into another country and they've been disappeared. And uh, last year, a number of bodies washed up were found in the Mekong River and they've been tortured. They've been filled with concrete and dumped. Unfortunately, this is what the the concern is that uh, that Ta or, or Wan Chaliam, who's who was abducted on on June first, this is what probably happened to him. Now, the really strange thing about this case is that it was an abduction in broad daylight in the middle of Phnom Penh, and there were people all around who saw this but were too scared to intervene. He was just buying some food of a roadside stall and he was on the phone speaking to his sister. His sister is still in, in Thailand. His sister heard everything going on. And basically what happened is uh, three armed men, uh, you know, a, a black four-wheel drive pulled up and three armed men jumped out, grabbed him, dragging and screaming, I can't breathe, according to her report, and sped off. And the CCTV's showing these two cars speeding off uh, from the area. CCTV did not actually capture the, the abduction, but it captured you know the people around, standing back too frightened to act, cars speeding off. Now, despite this, the Cambodian authorities are saying nothing happened and they're refusing to investigate it, which is, of course, you know, made people very suspicious that uh, there must be complicity with the Cambodian authorities with this abduction. And indeed, in the last few years, the, the relations between the Thai military junta, really, and the Hun Sen government have uh, improved. And in fact, one of the most disturbing things is that within the, all the ASEAN countries in the region, you know, there seems now to be a much stronger agreement to basically cooperate in the return of dissidents you know, from one country to the other, or back to the country they came from. So unfortunately, this is what looks like is happening. And uh, Wan Chilean was one of the last of the dissidents, several hundred Thai dissidents who fled after 2014, who was living in the region. All the others, if they have survived, have fled further afield to, to richer countries where even there they don't feel totally safe. Last year, for instance, another dissident but by the name of uh, Pavin Chachavalpongpon, uh, a lecturer in a university currently in Kyoto in Japan, told me the story of how a few months ago he was attacked in his home in Kyoto by people he suspects were agents of the Thai military. He was injured in the attack, but they did not succeed in, in abducting them. And possibly he thinks... You know, they were just sending a signal to say, you know, you think you're you're safe here in Japan, but you're not. This is what's going on. Now, it might very well be. What I did is I, I did an interview with uh, Andrew Gregor Marshall, who is a long-time journalist. He used to work for Reuters for 17 years, and he was the deputy bureau chief eight years ago in Bangkok. And he left Reuters because he found that Reuters was censoring his stories that were critical uh, of the government and the monarchy. Anyway, he's written 
a book called The Kingdom in Crisis, which has been banned in Thailand. It's considered to be offensive to the monarchy. Now, he says that he has found some evidence in the form of aviation records that the private security detail of the king of Thailand, a relatively new young king, uh, Vijayalongkorn, he's known as a bit of a playboy king, he spends most of his time overseas in Europe and having his, his rich playboy existence. You know, he was actually overseas and Andrew found aviation records showing that his security chief got on the plane in Europe and flew back to oversee the abduction. That's his suspicion anyway. But one of the interesting things here is this king is so kind of like, you know, he's so sort of out there. There are beginning to be leaks from you know, within his own entourage. So more and more information is coming out about what he's up to and his paranoia about people who have criticized him. In Thailand, for quite some time, you know, basically the monarchy has been propped up and preserved as uh, part of uh, the ideological apparatus of basically the military, which has pretty much run the country since 1932. There have been more military coups in Thailand than I think any other country, there might be one one or two more in the world that have had more military coups, but Thailand has had heaps of them. And they basically think that they run the show and they've worked in alliance with the monarchy. So they preserve this, this sense that you, you know, you, you're not allowed to say anything critical. If you say something critical of them, it's immediately shouted as being criticizing the monarchy. And, you know, it's an... It's an offence you can get locked up for for a long time in Thailand. So these two institutions are sort of like, you know, working together very closely. When you're talking about the current king, I think it was pretty predictable that this is the sort of life that he was going to exhibit if he did become the king when his father died. But there was never the possibility that his sister could have been the ruler, was there? That just wasn't considered at all. I mean, probably from the point of view of the military, she might have been a better candidate in the long term anyway, you know, because I don't think this king is actually being very effective. If if the military is the real power here, it's actually propping up the monarchy. It's very different. So like, um, I mean, traditionally speaking, you know, where you have a remnant of, of feudalism, you know, you could imagine that, uh, you know, in a, a country in, in, the, in the least developed parts of the country, that's where the monarchy would be revered. It's just part of overall backwardness, etc. But in recent politics, the pattern's been very different. So, in the whole conflicts around the between the red shirts and the yellow shirts around that climaxed in 2014, the political base of the monarchy, officially the monarchy, the you know the monarchy was a was really a cover for the military, was increasingly within middle-class layers and some rich layers in the urban areas in Bangkok and around Bangkok in particular. The support for the other side, for the red shirts, was in the poorer rural areas. So what I'm saying is that this is a very modern, it's a strange phenomena. It's feudalism with modern characteristics and it's all connected up with totally corrupt system that is focused around the military hanging on to power.
having on to not just political power, but economic power too, through lucrative contracts that they have from everything from logging to uh, mining to human trafficking. But meanwhile, the ability to speak out against that regime is very limited, or if you do, you know what the consequences are going to be. Yeah, and it is, you know, I mean, why would they want to use loyalty to, to a monarchy as a way to, to dress this up? Because, you know, I mean, countries all around the world do this sort of repression without that, you know? So, I mean, for instance, one of the really absurd things now is that a lot of the charges of offending the monarchy arise out of social media posts. But at the same time, in countries which don't have this sort of, like, propped-up monarchy, they are introducing new offensives for social media posts critical of the government. So, I mean, recently... So the case in the, in the Philippines, where a prominent journalist for Rappler was, has been convicted of a new crime, cyber libel or something, can get jailed for it. In Thailand, you know, they're, they're still using this thing, you know, like yeah, somebody put something on, on Facebook, making a joke which refers to the pet of the king. That's enough to get a summons issued. I mean, it's, it's that sort of ridiculousness, which I think is actually probably getting to the stage now it's counterproductive to the rest of the world things it's stupid but these countries that you're talking about the philippines and thailand they're well supported by the west aren't they yeah well they all have you know i mean the thing is that the australian government is quite just going to ignore all this this is in the region on one hand it makes a big noise about its stake in the region whenever it wants to kind of whip up the sort of um fear of China, for instance, but, uh, you know, all these uh, offences against human rights, all these repressive acts are happening closer in the region, but there are countries which Australia is supporting, and of course, you know, they're silent. So that goes for the other Western countries. I mean, they're totally backing up these regimes. I, I guess it's part of that bigger economic system, which requires the rich countries to maintain repressive regimes around the world. I mean, it is not possible to to have a system which has the the gross inequalities, global inequalities that we have today without the richest countries actually propping up repressive regimes all around the world in order to maintain that inequality. From the system's point of view, it's necessary. It's, it's totally functional to it. Or else you're going to get people to, you know, to live in those conditions. I'll just finish with a quote from Andrew talking about Tar, his friend. He was a real hero, funny and smart, brave and kind. I'll never forget him. I think this was a very moving part of the interview I did with, with Andrew because he was on one hand speaking as a reporter, but in this instance he was also speaking as a friend. There's the human side here of the story. This is just one person. He was a political person, he was helping others, but he was also you know, just an ordinary person trying to, to survive. And I think that's what comes through here. And to, to be abducted and disappeared like this, most likely he's he's already been killed after you know not in a nice way probably after being tortured, then killed and now disposed of in some remote location, as has happened to others who have suffered the same fate. It's an atrocity, really.
atrocity against humanity. And I've been speaking with Peter Boyle from Greenleaf Weekly. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Today we're discussing a paper by political activist Joan Coxidge, A Police State. We're already there and it's mainly concentrating on a, a book back in 1982 called Rooted in Secrecy. Joan, when and where did your interest and concern about the severe reduction in our civil liberties through secret government agencies and repressive laws come from? Was there a particular incident or people at that time? You could say it all started during my opposition to the Vietnam War when a few of us got together to express our extreme irritation at the blatant snooping that was going on at that time. You could guarantee that every meeting, every rally, there'd be snoops making notes, taking photos of us, you know, who was there, and even taking down car registration numbers. We were a like-minded group, certainly freewheeling, quite radical, and we felt it was a good idea to find out who the hell they were, which we did by devious means, which if you did today, you'd be in a saffron jumpsuit and you'd be hidden away somewhere and never seen again. So we're always very open in what we did. I put my name to everything. As I said, you'd never get away with it today. But that was the birth of CAP, the Committee for the Abolition of Political Police. Now, that was born in March. 1973, just after the election of the Whitlam government, when you could say a, a little bit of a fresh air was blowing through our society, which didn't last very long, unfortunately. That was sort of uh, extinguished in November 75 when Whitlam was shafted, and uh, we ended up with some more right wing elements. But we didn't give up. We thought that was a very important time to keep going. So over the years, we learned about the number of secret agencies, about secret treaties, and we wrote extensively about the dangers they posed to a democratic society, and we did it via letters, leaflets, pamphlets, booklets, submissions to royal commissions, for they did have a few of those. They were duds, but they had them. And in 1982, we put our material all together in a book rooted in secrecy. I still do think that was a very important book because it was widely distributed throughout the Labor movement and proved to be very popular because it was easy to read and among the serious writing and analysis it was peppered with cartoons, my drawings and quotes and always with some humour. And if you like, I could give you a few of the quotes we included in the book just to sort of highlight the, the, the writing was a quote from Victor Marchetti who was in the CIA and he wrote extensively about his experiences there and he was very good but he said this is many many years ago there exists in our nation today a powerful and dangerous secret cult the cult of intelligence how right he was and this was again from another extraordinarily paranoid crazy man CIA official James Jesus Angleton and he once told Congress, it's inconceivable that a secret intelligence arm of the government has to comply with all the overt orders of the government. Telling you something. And a little bit more about CAP. It says a little bit about what we were and where we were coming from. Can I ask you who the we were? I co-authored the book with uh, Ken.
Ken Caldercutt and Jerry Harrant, and one of the other people who who was active in doing stuff was Kevin Healy, who loved it. But there were other people involved who sometimes they just popped up. Many other people, radical people, some in the Labor Party, not many, some in the Communist Party, a few, and people who were quite uh, in harmony with what we were doing. And that was, I think, very important because it broadened our involvement, if you like, and our appeal. And that was terribly important because we didn't want to talk to ourselves. You know, we were pretty keen to get our message out and and talk to the wider movement. And I think the book achieved that, actually, because it's still being used today. But I'll give you one really, really funny quote we used. And this was a, the actual a chapter was a spotlight on special branch. And this was a quote from Joe Bielke-Peterson, who, as most of you will remember, he was the Premier of Queensland, and he was as right-wing as it's possible to be. This is what he had to say. You ought to get down on your knees and say thank you that we've got a police force that's trying to keep society free. And some of you may remember that was one of the most repressive police forces in the country. I can remember going up to Queensland and marching because marching was forbidden. It wouldn't matter what it was for because we were up there to support one of the unions, I think, who were being prosecuted for daring to do that. So I think that's a particularly hysterical quote from that creep. But this is a little bit more about CAP itself. We put in our bibliography, which we kept simple because we didn't want to be bogged down in too much of that because it wasn't a, an academic book. It says, We've deliberately refrained from spoiling our text with subscripts. We know from experience that only a handful of readers ever bother to go back to source material. Furthermore, in describing the work of our own secret agencies, there's very little first-hand matter available. On the subject of secret agencies in general, many books are obviously mixtures of fact and fantasy. Our own direct experiences have allowed us to be selective about the material reproduced here, but for those who want to dig deeper, we list bibliography for each chapter and or references, not necessarily only those mentioned in the book. And a special tribute should be paid to those courageous ex-agents who have taken considerable risks and in some cases have suffered personal disadvantages in publicising the work that they have done. And that was always, of course, from the inside. And another little bit I'll just quote, and that was the selection of media reference. And the volume of publicity generated by CAP is considerable. Much of it is unknown to the authors, given the Australian-wide and international responses to our largely Melbourne-based activities. As seen in the small selection below, suburban papers and the alternative press are heavily represented. This sample shows how a small but dedicated group using an appropriately flexible style can make an impact, even when the subject is virtually taboo. It also shows that the work involved in writing submissions to inquiries where the results are predetermined can be used to advantage the more general publicity. I think, Jan, that sort of sums up what we were doing back then. You're talking about secret agencies. Then you're saying, well, you got some information from ex-agents. Where else did you get the information from? Just by being on the ground. And this is what you can't beat. We often said this, that academics often get there or write their books quoting from other academics. We reckon direct action, action on the ground, being there, learning, 
and learning from what we've done and then moving on and that's the way you build on what you what you know I used to well I used to put the name to them but we were all involved in that we used to put out the names addresses of Asian patients for example and we used to distribute them far and wide now can you imagine distributing stuff like that today but that's the sort of stuff we did and out of that we get more reaction support attacks etc but it was all a learning experience we were actually the first group in the world to actually name secret agencies and publicize them were you threatened yes i used to get abusive phone calls and death threats and god knows what frequently i seem to be single now tell us some of the actions you took that are in that book a lot of actions, actually, and a lot of them with humour. We, we held a Christmas party outside the ASIO headquarters and we used to meet there regularly and take the photos of snoops coming in and out of the building and it really got a, an incredible reaction by them. They used to put blankets over their heads and run like hell for their cars, etc. So we did all sorts of things, but they were always humorous. We all, and we had an auction, I think that was one of our highlights we held an auction outside the head of ASIO's house it was a fair dinkum auction that he, he was trying to flog off his house we held a dummy one out the front and I think Kevin could have been the auctioneer on that particular occasion but it, it was again with humor but always with a serious intent so that was typical of the sort of stuff we did what do you believe you found out that's so important that you put in that book well, we found out the way that they were controlled by the American secret agency network. Formerly it was the British, but when after the war, they were broke, and America took over the leadership of the world and certainly took over us, and we became part and parcel and a, a very lowly one in their scheme of things. We learned about secret treaties, which we had, hadn't known before. We learned about certain secret agencies that were even unknown to the government of the day, and we also got leaks because some of the people that worked in them weren't very happy about what they were doing and so once they knew we were fair dinkum it was amazing the amount of material that was sent to us quite amazing building up over the years because this didn't last just for five months or six months this was a a long-term commitment we also learned a, a lot about pine gap and other secret bases here don't forget they might be known now but we're going back to the early 70s when this sort of information simply wasn't known, wasn't publicised at all because there were D-notices put on lots of this material which meant they couldn't be published, published in the press. How difficult was it to find a publisher? Well, I used to tote the damn thing around from publisher to publisher and always got knocked back. And we finally thought we'd nailed one and then it turned out that politically we weren't acceptable so we lost the book bounty, which was worth quite a lot of money back then. You used to get for Australian books written by Australians, you'd got a, quite a substantial amount of money. So we then decided, well, okay, we were determined to publish it one way or another, so we did it ourselves. The cover was done, Jerry did that, organised the cover of the book, which is terrific. The arm that shows on the cover is his arm. You know, we, we're just completely innovative. I sat on the floor of my office and laid the damn thing out, so that was a huge job. But it looked terrific. Ahead, and Dave Kingham had a press that would do the job, and it was lucky for us, it was a new press, so it was a, quite a sophisticated one, so he was able to run off the books. As I say, it was very popular, very popular. And the 
analyses we uh, drew then are as relevant today as they were then. This is what I like about it. Okay, a lot of it has happened since then, but the basic premise of the book is extremely relevant today, particularly when you look at what has been happening in the last few years. And I think it's important for people to understand that prior to 9-11, Australia had no national laws dealing specifically with terrorism. But after the September 11 attacks, there was an explosion of these laws. And since that date, Australia has enacted a staggering, and it is staggering, 82 anti-terror laws running to many hundreds of pages, a new law on average every six to seven weeks, more than any other comparable country and far exceeding the volume passed in the UK, Canada and even in the United States. And as we know, we've got even more in the pipeline. And it's not only the number of these laws, but also their scope. And Australia's response has been described by a Canadian academic as hyper-legislation. It's important also that laws once considered extreme that ought to have been limited in their application have now become accepted as a normal, in inverted commas, part of our criminal justice system, which in turn has given rise to even more draconian legal measures that have a profound and permanent impact on our constitution. And in this highly politicised war on terror, habeas corpus and the Magna Carta have been thrown out the window. But we have to ask the question, Joan, why Australia? Down the bottom end of the world, small population, not radical, why us? Very good question. I think we've had very right-wing governments and have used overseas happenings to apply laws here, for example, in the wake of the London bombings in July 2005, our government was at it again with a new raft of control orders. And I think we've also got to say we're a right-wing country. We're an extremely right-wing country, and they just use every excuse to shove in a whole lot more laws. And, of course, it's made it easier for them to enact because Australia has no Bill of Rights. And some of the latest laws have been absolutely appalling. We've seen uh, an increased attack on whistleblowers, on the few journalists left who have something to say and are prepared to say it. And we've had police raids on them with a demand for fingerprints, which is unprecedented. Uh, We've had uh, secret courts, secret charges, secret buggings secret sentencing of witnesses J and K. Most people have heard of K now, but not about J, and that happened earlier because he was in jail for quite a long time before even a smidgen of it came out, and most people have never heard of it anyway. I think you've got to face the fact that these are fascist laws to criminalise dissent. It's to shut us up. So basically that's what it's about, and as I say, we're a very conservative country anyway, And then you ask yourself, have you read about it anywhere? Very unlikely, because in the global ranking of press freedom, Australia comes in at number 26, which is a disgrace. We've dropped further from where we were last year. We now trail behind Cape Verde, Liechtenstein, Namibia, Latvia and Samoa. And then we've got further cuts like over the last 24 hours to what's left of our ABC 
Is it any wonder that the voices of the left are virtually non-existent, except in programs like yours, Jan? And no wonder Australia has been called a one-legged democracy. It's true. I think it's quite frightening, the fact that so few of us are doing anything. In fact, if you go back into the disgraceful role played by Australia, the Australian government when it came to East Timor, a very, very poor country, they sent an ASIS agent along to bug key officers of the, of, of the government at a time when serious negotiations were taking place about the oil and gas reserves in the Timor Sea. And remember, again, this is one of the poorest countries in the world, and success, a fair deal, put it that way, a fair deal would have given them Timor-Leste between 40 and $50 billion, but the game was rigged. The ASIS operation was kept secret. Treaty was duly signed, and Australia secured a 50-50 split of the Greater Sunrise Fields, which was a terrific deal for our government, and a boon for the multinationals led by Woodside. Duplicitous action should have been, or would have been buried, had it not been for the courageous agent who did the bugging, who was very embarrassed and didn't like what was going on. Now, he's witness Kay. So he approached the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, who gave him the nod to speak to approved lawyer Bernard Collery. He was a barrister and a former ACT Attorney General. Well, he was helping... Timor Leste built a case against Australia at The Hague because he alleged that the bugging had rendered the treaty void. This embarrassed the government because a lot of his comments were splashed across our media and there was a lot of anger there. But he said corporate greed was a major part of it because the Howard and Downer governments were shrills for the corporations. And after leaving office, it's interesting, isn't it, that Alexander Downer went on to work for Woodside as a so-called consultant, which to me is not only reprehensible, which would seem to border on corruption, decided to prosecute Collery, also the ASIS agent. Now, the ASIS agent is not going ahead with fighting them, but Collery is. No, I don't think Collery brought that out, but he'd flown to The Hague to prepare Timor Leste's case, and 10 agents and police raided his chambers and they spent more than six hours rifling through all these documents, especially those relating to the dispute between Timor-Leste and Australia. And at the same time, a second raid was taking place at the home of Witness Kay, who was preparing to join Corrie at The Hague, but his passport was seized, preventing him from leaving the country, which is a straight-out intimidation. There's no other way to describe it. Collery was trying to publish a book and there were threats of jail by the government, but he persevered. And in 2020, he published Oil Under Troubled Water, and he described Australia as a pariah state that lacked even sufficient skill to benefit its own citizens with the proceeds of the plunder in the Timor Sea. And a lot of that isn't known. Well, they've successfully managed to destroy his legal career, haven't they? I think so, because... uh, I don't know how you win against them. This is the thing, and he's very courageous to take them on. But the trouble is, he will take them on, but it'll all be in a secret trial. It won't be made public. That's the most disturbing aspect of it. It's all secret, which is why Rooted in Secrecy was a very appropriate title for our book, written right back then. And you wonder if 
Julian Assange survives long enough to be extradited to the US, whether his trial will be seen. Absolutely, and they've added more charges to him. I think yesterday I heard that they've added even more charges against him. And yes, I think they want to wear him right down and kill him. It's virtually a form of judicial murder. I think it's just disgraceful, again, that our government has done absolutely nothing to help him in any way whatsoever and it is absolutely outrageous because he's an Australian citizen and he's entitled to be given some protection but again a lot of this was forecast by us all those years ago Jan we said back then as the establishment fear of an impending economic collapse deepens the drive for repression headed by the global intelligence network deepens with it we described how these clandestine forces increasingly dominate our entire political life. And uh, unless others rec recognise this dangerous trend, our future will be determined, or not be determined, by where we want to be, go, but rather where we will be allowed to go. And I think it's been proved to be true, unfortunately. And I think we're entering an extraordinarily dangerous period right now. I think it's worth remembering that we've got form in the anti-democratic states because Prime Minister Menzies' bill outlawing communism in September 1951 was defeated by the, by the merest whisker thanks to a vigorous campaign by the Labor movement, but he had concentration-style camps at the ready to incarcerate anyone with a leftish tendency and then years later when Whitlam got the chop in a CIA-orchestrated coup the army was put on full alert to take over our streets. And there's a lot of other incidents that we don't know about, again, because of the secrecy. I'm worried about the future for our kids and grandchildren. There's no strong at the moment. We get distracted by trivia and shopping and other things. You know, there's no movement, no strong movement. The Labour Party's pathetic. People try and work with what's there, but it's not much is there. And that's why 3CR is very important, because it does provide a place for people to talk, centre left-wing analysis, discuss situations that the mainstream media, which is shrinking anyway, refuses to deal with. And many thanks to political and social activist Joan Coxidge. Hi, we're from Labour College and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 8.55am. The world community has passed the six-month mark with the virulent COVID-19 virus and it's obvious that certain countries in all parts of the world have fared either much better or much worse in containing the impacts of the virus. And it's not necessarily whether or not the country is wealthy or in a particular part of the globe. Today the focus is on South America and I'm joined by broadcaster and activist Sasha Gillies-Lakakis to take us through the journey through this part of the world and explain the reality of the virus in that large area and why. Sasha, it's impossible to go past Brazil as the country most affected by the virus. The figures are horrific in reported cases, more than 50,000 lives lost the world's worst hit country after the US and knowing the Bolsonaro government's view on the virus these figures could well be understatement 
and many do point the finger directly at that President Jair Bolsonaro. But is that the only part of the explanation for such a disaster? Well, look, certainly Bolsonaro's lack of leadership in this situation has been a very significant aspect that has led to the current crisis. Brazil is currently second in the world in terms of coronavirus cases. They're almost at 1,200,000 cases, which is incredible. Um, and experts actually say that the real number is six or seven times that because the testing and, and statistic keeping in Brazil has been so lax. In terms of the other factors at play, a big factor has also been, of course, the um, multinational lobby in Brazil. They are having an absolute field day with this, with this crisis that Bolsonaro has, has in part created. They've, of course, pressured him to refuse to take action, particularly in the Amazon region, because now they've been able to move in, seize land, and basically, you know, continue the plundering that, that they rely on to make their profit. There was a report recently that said in the first quarter of 2020, there was more deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon than all of last year combined. So that just goes to show that it, it's not just Bolsonaro as significant as he is um, in contributing to the situation, but there are certainly other players involved who have recognised that there's an opportunity for personal profit to be made out of the crisis. Bolsonaro's lack of central authority has meant that they can pretty much do whatever they want in the Amazon. And of course, even if Bolsonaro did know the full extent of what they were doing... I don't think he would care because he's just that sort of person. Is there a concern that this virus could wipe out the, the small Indigenous communities in the Amazon? Yes, we know for sure that uh, the coronavirus has reached most Indigenous communities in the Amazon, at least one or two cases in each community. Some have far more. A number of high-profile Indigenous leaders have died from the virus including one um, Chief Warani, who was instrumental in, in highlighting forest fire crisis in Brazil last year. He's since perished from the coronavirus. All the experts, medical experts, anthropological experts, not only in Brazil, um, but, but from across the world, have said that this is going to, if there's no action taken, this is going to reach genocidal proportions and we'll see most of these communities disappear off the face of the earth which is an absolute tragedy, and it doesn't seem like it's going to change. It seems that Bolsonaro is going to continue to just not take action. He's not going to impose any lockdown measures. He's not going to stop the multinationals from coming in and taking this land. And there, there are some tribes, of course, that haven't been contacted, that we have no information about, and they're likely to perish as well, so we may never know. Yeah, it's a very troubling. Is there also an impact on the black communities because of, lower socioeconomic status and also that their housing is, is a lot, a lot more people living in the same dwellings and that they're more at risk? Of course, uh, some of the most notorious communities that have a majority Afro-Brazilian population are the favelas or the, the slum communities in large cities like Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo. They did become hotspots of the virus. Interestingly, they weren't the places with the highest concentration. That was actually some of the wealthier suburbs because of the travellers bringing the virus back to Brazil. But it's since exploded in, in some of those communities. And there was actually some very valiant efforts on the part of the favela community leaders, even some of the criminal, you know, organised crime um, leaders in those areas to try and mitigate the, the damage of the virus. They imposed their own lockdown and didn't let anyone in or out of the favelas for a time. But even that effort was, was opposed by the government. They didn't recognise the lockdown. Of course, Bolsonaro doesn't want a lockdown. He's a 
attended many rallies against any sort of social distancing or any restrictions. The police were sent in um, to basically reopen the favelas. So they are Afro-Brazilians are most definitely being adversely affected, disproportionately so, by the coronavirus. And another interesting point onto that, and this wasn't reported in the English language um, very much. I only found one article. But in Portuguese and Spanish, um, there were a number of Black Lives Matter protests in Brazil after the death of George Floyd in, in the US. And again, we don't know very much about what happened at these protests, if there were any deaths, because it just hasn't received coverage. But, but you know, Afro-Brazilians certainly recognise that they are, being, they are being targeted still, even in spite of this crisis, that they are, of course, suffering the most from the virus itself. But even though Bolsonaro has taken the stand that he has, there are a number of governors in the different parts of Brazil who oppose his stand. That's correct. And that, yeah, interestingly, has been a saving grace for some parts of Brazil in that they do have that, um, that state structure. So, so the different regions do have quite a degree of power that, that the federal government can't impose upon them, or at least by convention it shouldn't be able to, but who, who knows what Bolsonaro will do in the months to come. So one, one case is Rio de Janeiro. Um, that is actually ruled by a very right-wing governor, but he has since turned on Bolsonaro. He was originally a supporter. He has imposed um, a lockdown on Rio, but I, I'm pretty sure that was only for two or three weeks and, and they have begun to reopen again. But the most interesting case comes from the northeast of Brazil, which is the poorest part of Brazil. That's where most Afro-Brazilians live, and that's a traditional base of support for the Workers' Party and particularly the state of Maranhão, that's the poorest state in Brazil, and it's actually led by the Communist Party, which went um, into the elections in 2018 in coalition with the Workers' Party. And he and Flavio Dino, the governor, he put in a total lockdown of his state. He didn't let anyone in or out. Social distancing, mask use was, was all made mandatory. The national government, Bolsonaro, criticised him. He, they even went to the point of saying that he should be arrested for resisting the, the demands of the, of the national government, which is ridiculous. And they actually blocked medical supplies from coming into that state to try and force them to reopen. What the governor did was he actually had to smuggle Chinese medical supplies via Ethiopia to get them into his state. That's how, that's the length he had to go to to protect people in his own country, which is absolutely astonishing. But yes, the northeastern states have, have generally performed better. They, they have lower coronavirus case counts, lower mortality counts, which of course makes sense because they, they are following, um, you know, more progressive socialist-oriented policies. We're going to look at many of the countries, but staying with those that are bordering Brazil, and you're talking about the northeast, and just to the north of those those states, there's the, the small states of French Guiana, Suriname, and Guyana. How are they coping? Is yes. anyone is anyone following how those people in those areas are coping, being so close to Brazil? Yes, they're they're an interesting case in that none of them have registered very high case counts as of yet, as well as few deaths, and that that is in part because even though they do border Brazil. They have never received large amounts of foreign visitors. Even people on business do not tend to go to the Guyanas because they've never, uh, you know, they've, they've never seen it as a, as a, as a place where they have of some sort of resource. That is going to change because in both Suriname and, and in particular Guyana, they've discovered vast oil reserves off the coast. 
again, we'll see we'll see what ends up happening with that. Um, they haven't been able to tap into that yet because of the coronavirus. But the uh, epidemiological situation has been overshadowed by politics in these countries. Guyana and Suriname recently had had elections, both of which have been very controversial and hotly disputed. There's been widespread accusations of vote rigging from all the parties concerned. They've had to get people from um, the Organisation of Caribbean States to come and monitor elections, recount the votes. These two countries are still, they even though they don't have a lot of cases, they're lacking any sort of leadership that will be necessary in case these cases begin to climb. And I mean, they are. Uh, just at a very at a very low rate. For example, I've got I've got the stats here. Guyana only has about 209 cases, but you know it is increasing by by you know five or so every day, and that could very very quickly get out of control. As for French Guyana, there's not a lot of information. The French gov because the French government, of course, controls this part of South America. They have been very tight lips about the measures that they've been taking in French Guyana. We know that there are cases there. We know that. French Guiana is a very poor country. It has a very weak healthcare system. But in terms of the actual situation, we, we, we just don't know that much. And the French government has not been willing to divulge too much on the situation there. You mentioned leadership there. If we go to the, the northeast of there, or the northeast of Brazil, we have Venezuela. How would you judge from what you've read how the leadership there is coping with the situation in that country? Venezuela has actually been one of the, I guess what you could call one of the success stories of, of COVID-19 in South America. And it's not that surprising, but um, there was a lot of speculation that Venezuela would be incapable of, of handling the situation, that it would become that it would become a health emergency, a health crisis. Colombia, neighbouring Colombia, even said Venezuelans are going to become a, like, you know, a, a health threat to our country. And, you know, it's actually ended up resulting that it's been the other way around, that Colombia and Brazil are health threats to Venezuela. Venezuela closed their borders very early on. They imposed all the, the social distancing and um, social confinement restrictions that other countries did to keep people at home and to keep the virus at bay. Again, Venezuela does not receive a lot of international visitors, so it was, it was helped by the fact that there wasn't a lot of transit through the country. And, and of course, even though Venezuela's health system has been heavily crippled by, by US sanctions and internal sabotage from the opposition, they have, of course, been able to rely on the help of the Cubans, and that has been a very significant boost to their health system. And that's why they've only registered, they've only registered a couple of dozen deaths, I believe, 38 deaths, um, which is an incredibly low amount, and about 4,000 cases, which for the population is also um, a very low statistic. And again, this isn't surprising that their, their socialist care system, despite the scarcities, it does, it does, like the Cuban system, rely on preventative care. So there has been low death, um, low death counts because of that. But of course, the media was predicting a, a crisis that just hasn't eventuated. We're talking about Colombia next, a country heavily influenced by the US. Mm. Has that impacted on it at all? In terms of the virus, the spread of the virus itself, there is a possible link to some to some clusters, and that is the Korean government just a few weeks ago signed an agreement with the US government um, to station American soldiers in Colombia, about 3,000. And that's most likely going to be aimed at another attempt to stabilise Venezuela. There's not really any other reason they would be there. 
and it's quite possible that um, a number of clusters in Colombia have actually originated from these soldiers. There's not enough information to prove that that's the case, but that's certainly what speculation is, is, is suggesting. Colombia currently has quite a high case count, 73,000, almost 74,000. And that's, and they did put in um, social distancing measures. They did impose a lockdown a little bit after most of the other countries. But the real crisis is, even though they've done this, they've continued with a lot of their neoliberal policies, um, and that includes evicting the poor from their houses. You know, you have this social distancing regime in place, and then, on the other hand, you have heaps and heaps of poor Colombians being kicked out onto the streets with nowhere to go. So they've ended up having to walk back to their to their home villages in some cases or to friends' houses in other parts of the country, or they're just living in the streets. And that creates really fertile breeding grounds for the coronavirus. So there's this contradiction that has led to an increase, an increase in the number of cases there. And the other really tragic thing is that as the virus count is um, increasing, and it should be mentioned that their death count is still higher than it should be, but it's, it's low compared to a lot of other countries in Latin America. But in terms of the social killings that Colombia has become infamous for, they have not abated at all. In fact, since the pandemic began, around 140 people, social leaders, social activists, have been murdered by government forces, by the right-wing paramilitary groups. And of course, these paramilitary groups do continue to receive funding from the United States, from the US government. The few measures that Colombia has taken are really being overshadowed by basically a continuation of the government's neoliberal policies. And the impact of the drugs in Colombia too, does that impact at all on the way that the people are looked after, the concentration of, of drug lords and the like? In some of the cities, like the capital Bogotá, Barranquilla, there has been an increase in gang violence. And that's true for other countries where gangs were an issue, uh, most notably Mexico, but I- I'm sure we'll get to that later. But in the rural areas of Colombia where, where the drug farming was done, it's become a very big issue because, well, firstly, the social distancing restrictions keep everyone at home. But a lot of the people who cultivate these drugs, and we can't forget that the people who cultivate them are often very poor and they have no other way to gain an income. So they're almost forced into it. And then they're often held by paramilitary groups, by the drug cartels, into, into um, growing the drugs. But they have to, or else they're going to starve. They are forced out to, to, to defy these restrictions and head out and continue producing, producing drugs. And, and drug outflow from Colombia has actually increased slightly since the pandemic began because the government has been so focused on maintaining these social distancing restrictions and, and whatnot that they have, that they've forgotten almost about the, um, the drug barons who have continued their business. And I think part of that is deliberate. Um, Colombia's government is riddled with corruption. It is intimately linked to a number of drug cartels. So it wouldn't be surprising if this was almost a deliberate ploy by the government. What's the situation in Ecuador and Peru when you're talking about drug barons and right-wing governments? Both Peru and Ecuador currently have right-wing governments in power. Peru's a little bit less so. They're they're a more interesting case. Um, But we'll start with Ecuador. And Ecuador has distinguished itself with the grim title of having the highest number of excess deaths for population in the world. So currently, they have the highest number of deaths that were of unnecessary deaths or deaths that could have been avoided relative to their population. I'm sure that they will be overtaken, perhaps by Brazil or the United States at some point. That's 
just an indication of, of how dire the situation is. They currently have, according to official statistics, 51,000 cases. But again, like Brazil, um, experts predict that the true number is, is actually far higher. Drug production in Ecuador is an issue. Um, it hasn't been as significant an issue because there aren't as many regions of the country that are that are suitable to harvesting and to growing and producing cannabis or cocaine. That in the uh, the higher altitude areas of Peru and Bolivia and Colombia, the real crisis that Ecuador is facing is it's of course it's got its healthcare system which has virtually collapsed. They haven't said so, but it, it has all but disappeared. Bodies are being dumped in public toilets because there's no room in hospitals. People have been out in the streets protesting again, like they did last year and the year before, because there's not enough food for people. People can't get food on the table. People can't pay their rent. And the government hasn't provided any sort of social support or social security during this period, which, which has been ridiculous. Like, even from a, a political survival standpoint, you would think that they would provide at least something um, but they've just they've just ignored pleas of of the people, and they've continued their neoliberal agenda, like in Colombia, like in Brazil. They've laid off 150,000 people in the public sector. They've cut education funding by over 100 million dollars, and they've also eliminated seven public companies. And two of the most notable ones are Ecuador's rail system and Ecuador's public media system, so the equivalent of our SBS and our ABC. It is a crisis that is continuing to get worse. Indigenous communities, of course, are disproportionately affected. As we know, Ecuador does um, contain part of the Amazon. And, and again, it is just being completely disregarded. Companies are continuing to operate there in spite of the um, worldwide condemnation of, of countries that are allowing this to happen. And yeah, it is, it is not going to get better anytime soon because the Moreno government is very set on, on continuing to, to accrue a profit for itself and its cronies through the multinationals operating there. This is 3CR and you're listening to Sasha Gillies-Lakakis analysing the impact of the coronavirus in South America. If we move across to Peru, they have the sixth highest case count in the world now, uh, over 250,000 cases, 260,000 actually. And again, they've almost given up. The government almost admitted defeat in the face of the coronavirus. They said, look, we just can't control it, but we can't keep the economy closed for any longer or, or it is going, the situation is going to get even more dire, which of course is going to be a grave mistake as we've seen. The Peruvian economy has plummeted 40% over the course of the pandemic growth, which, which is an absolutely massive amount. As I said, they've reopened pretty much everything, shopping centres, schools, private mines, and, and there's a lot of inter-country travel to get to those mines, so that's only going to spread the virus even further. There has been some initiative on the part of the government in terms of healthcare. They have threatened the, the private medical sector with a government takeover, a temporary government takeover, if they don't lower their prices, because Peruvians just can't afford hospital admission fees anymore. That's how dire the situation becomes. Again, like Ecuador, that is going to continue to grow, and the drug and the drug crisis is also um, a far bigger issue in Peru. It has grown consecutively each year, like in Colombia, and this is only going to provide more... The more chaos there is, the more these groups are going to be able to thrive. Is it also the Indigenous peoples in Bolivia who are facing the, the hardest road? 
Yes, well, Bolivia is a, um, a very interesting case. They've seen a recent spike. It looked like they weren't going to have a, a serious outbreak. However, the number of cases has now jumped to over 27,000, and we've got over 600 deaths. And, and Bolivia, as we know, is still reeling from the coup against Evo Morales last year, the so-called de facto president, though we should be calling her the coup-born president. Janine Añez, still in power. She said she would she would leave office and facilitate elections two months ago. That has not happened. And of course, we knew it wouldn't. She, in alliance with the military, she is attempting to maintain the power of the oligarchy in Bolivia. The Bolivian Senate, which is still controlled with a two-thirds majority by Eva Morales' socialist party, the MAS, they approved a law calling for elections on September 6th. Janine Añez rejected it, and then there was widespread condemnation in the country and out. And she has since reneged on that decision and said that there will be elections on September 6th. Mm. Again, I doubt that these elections will be free or fair because the MAS candidate, the socialist candidate, uh, Luis Arce, is still the favourite by a long shot. He still predicted to win. But, of course, they haven't let him back into the country. The coup, the coup administration has threatened him with arrest if he comes back into Bolivia. And same with Eva Morales. That's why um, he's, he and his, um, a lot of his party are currently in Argentina as political refugees. But going back to the... Um, the plight of the indigenous people. So not only has, yes, you're right, the virus has disproportionately affected the communities, uh, a lot of the healthcare benefits and healthcare privileges that they received under Eva Morales have been eliminated by the, by the coup government. So often there's a lot of rural communities that don't have a hospital anymore or a, or a health clinic, which was one of Eva Morales' great achievements. Um, but of course, the coup government is cutting back on costs, as the neoliberals do. And, of course, the military is using this as a form of social control. They are saying that, that there, are out, there are disproportionate outbreaks in Indigenous communities and they need to be kept in their region, in their town or in, in their cities. And while, of course, the, the coronavirus is affecting Indigenous communities, uh, the claim that they are the epicentre is actually incorrect. The largest case of coronavirus or the largest cluster is in Santa Cruz, which is on the border of Brazil, and that's actually the wealthiest city in Bolivia. That's where most of the white Bolivians live. And again, this, this follows the pattern everywhere. The richest took the virus from abroad and brought it back to their country. So both there and in Beni, which is in the, the uh, Bolivian Amazon, and that actually didn't start in indigenous communities. That started with the wealthy cattle ranchers who often travel, um, travel overseas for business, for business conferences or to sign contracts. And they have then since brought it to the indigenous communities in the Bolivian Amazon. And, of course, police persecution of Indigenous communities is continuing. There's been threats to jail former supporters or, you know, continued supporters of Evo Morales' party. But, again, the, the Bolivian government, the, the coup government, just doesn't let this information out. You have to really look even to get this, this sort of surface-level knowledge uh, because they, they are incredibly tight-lipped on, on what is actually going on. Because I'm sure if we, if we found out the true scale of the coronavirus and the true scale the human rights violations that the coup government is, is perpetrating, you know, there would be international condemnation, as there already has been for what, for what we do know. And then you've got the relatively small countries of Paraguay and Uruguay who also border Brazil. How are they getting on? Paraguay and Uruguay actually have not been affected very much at all by the virus. They continue to have a very low case count, only in uh, like a couple of hundred for each country. 
Paraguay receives almost no international visitors. It's a very isolated country at the heart of South America. It's a very underdeveloped country as well. There's not actually a lot of opportunity for travel even within the country because of a lack of a road network and a lack of, you know, of reliable public transport. However, the government there, which is right-wing and neoliberal, has been embroiled in a, in a corruption scandal. They were exposed, the health ministry in particular, exposed as um, having used a, an, a private betting system to basically make a personal profit as they were purchasing medical equipment from abroad. And there have actually been a number of protests recently in Paraguay by the trade unions in the country and by the Guasu Front, which is a, a coalition of progressive parties um, and social and social organisations. Um, so the virus itself hasn't impacted Paraguay that much, but economically and socially the country is is entering recession and that is likely to exacerbate a range of issues that, that have existed in the country well well before this period. In terms of Uruguay, Uruguay not only did, didn't have many cases, but they did they did get a hold on it very early on. And this is in spite of the fact that they do, again, have a right-wing neoliberal government, but they only came to power very recently. And um, before that point, Paraguay was ruled for for over a decade by progressive alliance of, of left-wing political parties that, that did really strengthen Uruguay's healthcare system and made it quite robust. So it has been able to, to face the challenges of the coronavirus pandemic. Of course, the government is also entering recession. That's, that's an unavoidable fact of, of this global um, environment. And in a bid to, to salvage um, private interests and, and multinational operations in the country, they are looking to pass a range of neoliberal reforms that are going to cripple the public sector and draw that money into to the private sector and into private investments. And likewise, similar to Paraguay, there have been a number of protests against these proposed reforms. But both countries overall have come out of this relatively intact. And the two countries at the bottom, you could say, of South America, we've got the larger Argentina and the smaller Chile. How are they getting mm. on? Well, Argentina is another one of the, the success stories of Latin America. Um, late last year in November, the Peronist, the left-wing trade union coalition um, of political parties, was, was elected in a landslide. And they're led by Alberto Fernandez and Janeta Kirchner, and she was a former president of Argentina who did a lot of um, good for the country. She strengthened the, the public sector, um, public education, public health care. And so she, she is back in, in a leadership position in the country. They closed the borders almost immediately when the first few cases entered Argentina. It has since expanded, and there have been a, a couple of hundred deaths. But they, against all pressure from... Um, from the private companies and from, from um, the multinational lobby, they have kept the borders closed because the, the president himself said the economy is not as important as Argentinian people. And, you know, that might seem like a very simple thing to say, but very few world leaders have actually, you know, adopted this fundamental humane position. So I think Argentina does need to be commended for that. They did also ask for Cuban assistance. Um, so Cuban doctors and, and um, Cuban biopharmaceutical products used to treat COVID-19 have also helped Argentina curb the crisis. They have also expanded the social security net, provided government payouts to families, to homeless people. So they're doing a lot of very good things to confront the crisis. Economically, that's another matter. Argentina, because of the legacy of the right-wing McCree government, um, which indebted the country to absolute oblivion. We're talking billions of dollars from the IMF. He, he precipitated an economic crisis that has only been exacerbated by COVID-19. And this year, Argentina was due to pay its debts. 
Of course, it can't. It was almost bankrupt when the left-wing government came into power, and COVID-19 has made that impossible. They just can't pay back that sort of money. And the government was in negotiations with their debtors, both domestic and foreign. The debtors have been trying to pressure Argentina to pay up, even if that means cutting social services, opening the lockdown to let to let money back in, to let investment back into the country, um, because, of course, they're only interested in their profit. But the government has stood firm, and they've said, we're willing to negotiate, we're willing to restructure the debt, so we pay part of it, so we pay it in instalments. No agreement has yet been, been made, so they are still in, in negotiations, but it looks like neither side is willing to budge, really, or to compromise, which, you know, in the case of the Argentinian government, is good. I think what they're doing is, is appropriate. They shouldn't have to destroy their country and destroy the services of their people just so a few foreign debtors can get their money. But it remains to be seen what, what will happen. It, it seems like the country is heading towards an economic crisis. How are the Mapuche people getting on? The majority of them are in southern Argentina and in the Patagonian region, and their communities have not been affected too badly, mostly because these communities are poor, rural, out of the way. A lot of people don't tend to go there, so they have been spared the worst effects of the virus. As for Indigenous people in the city, they are already prone to higher incidences of health-related conditions, health-related issues. Um, So they they have been affected, again, disproportionately by the COVID-19 pandemic. This isn't surprising. We do still have the situation of of multinationals, um, particularly in forestry and mining, who are continuing their operations to some degree. The government hasn't completely halted the operations of a lot of multinationals. But this is a far more severe situation in neighbouring Chile. In Argentina, it is not quite as severe. So so in Chile, we have, again, Chile's in the top 10 for coronavirus cases around the world. They've just exceeded 250,000 cases. They say there's around 5,000 deaths, but it is, again, the statistics are probably incorrect. It's probably far higher than than um, 5,000, considering there are 250,000 cases. Chile, as we know, is one of the um, one of the most resolutely neoliberal countries in Latin America. They always have been ever since Pinochet came to power. They were really the first experiment in neoliberalism, and that has always left a lasting impact on on Chile's economy and its and its social services and its people. Because with the COVID-19 pandemic, we have seen that capitalism in Chile has been completely inadequate, completely useless in saving either people or the economy. I mean, Chile is heading towards recession even at an even faster rate than other Latin American countries. Their healthcare system, like Ecuador's and Brazil's, is pretty much at the point of collapse. There are not enough hospital beds, there are not enough ventilators, there is not enough space for people that need the care and the attention. And the government, in a way, used this pandemic as an excuse to keep people at home to enforce or to make it mandatory and um, the fact that people couldn't leave because as we know Chile was racked protests late last year and early this year protesting the gross inequalities caused by capitalism and with the COVID-19 pandemic well guess on one hand they've managed to keep people at home at least up until now but this has also highlighted the inequalities because the rich people in Chile are still able to afford food and rent. Um, some of them even went to, to down to the deep south of Chile or to Easter Island to hide from the pandemic. There was a scene um, earlier in the year where the rich Chileans were, were literally in helicopters to get away from the cities, which were the, the epicenters of the pandemic. And that just goes to show the gross difference between the haves 
and have not, and they have not in the country. And now people are defying the restrictions and they are going out and resuming the protests. It's currently on a smaller scale than it was because obviously people are scared um, of the effects of the virus. But this just goes to show that, you know, Chile's woes are far from over. Dissatisfaction with the government has reached an all-time high. Um, over 80%, 85% of the, of the total population strongly reject the Piñera government's approach to the crisis. And, they, and the health minister has even quit over the government's poor response to the pandemic. So, so Chile is definitely one to watch in the, in the coming months. And thanks to Sasha Gillis-Lakakis for that analysis. And on the program next week, we'll be looking at the Caribbean and Central America. Don't forget, this is the last week of the June Appeal. So please, if you haven't already, go onto the web, 3cr.org.au. Give us a call if you can't do that on 94198377. So important to keep this radio station going.